Thank you, Doomberg, for coming on the podcast and joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, as you see here, we've got a green chicken representing the pseudonymous group behind the number one finance newsletter on Substack, eponymously named Doomberg. So the team's background, I know, is in heavy industry and private equity and hard sciences. But uh, it would be great if, for those who don't know you, you could sort of tell the story in you know, a privacy-preserving way of uh, you know, how you got to where you are today and how Doomberg came to be. Jake, great to be here. It's um, kind of unique. We were joking before you hit record that this is uh, our first example of animated on animated crime, as we might say, but uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of cool and, and you've done a nice job um, uh, with that. So uh, as you mentioned, we are um, uh, an anonymous Substack. Um, many people know who we are. We keep our anonymity just predominantly for the brand, but as background, we're a very small team of, of former executives in the commodity sector with a focus on um, the hard sciences, especially as it pertains to energy. So the physics, chemistry, material science needs uh, of the sort of green energy transformation and the constraints therein. Um, we have a pretty strong background in science and finance on our team. And uh, we bring the industry voice to the conversation, which before we started Doomberg, we believe was sorely lacking. And that is the inefficiency in the market that we're looking to exploit. Um, prior to starting Doomberg, we, um, you know, what, we had assembled a small team and built a pretty bespoke consulting firm uh, focusing on executives in the commodity sector and a few wealthy private uh, office clients. Um, and uh, you know, beyond that, um, we started consulting in the content creator market, uh, especially the subset of that market that were focused on selling their content into Wall Street. We, we built that vertical into our business post-COVID because like many small business owners, COVID did severe damage to our existing book of business. I think we lost 85% of our revenue over the course of eight weeks, understandably so. Of course, nothing we did wasn't our fault. The economy shut down and consultants are one of the easiest variable costs to turn off during times of crises. And then we were not immune um, from that crisis. And, and so we reinvented ourselves and, and became pretty well known in the finance content creator world. And one of our top clients uh, strongly recommended that we start our own given our abilities in the area and our passion about the, the subject matter. So in a way, if it wasn't for COVID and the economic damage that was inflicted upon our pre-existing business, there would be no Doomberg. And um, what a shame that would be because it is truly the work of my life. It is what I was meant to do. It's it's the funnest thing we've ever done as a team. It's the funnest thing I've certainly ever done as an individual. When I when I reflect back on my career, which spans many decades and um, and and is filled with lots of accomplishments I'm a proud, I'm very proud of, but this one stands alone as, as the thing I'm most proud of and, and the thing I intend to do for as long as the market will uh, give us the signal that it's worth doing. Yeah, I love what you said there. And, uh, you know, you guys write a piece once in a while called The Work of My Life, and it talks about this and sort of gives updates on on what you guys are building with Doomberg and in the beginning, especially like calling out different uh, content creators who you sort of admired and sought to emulate in various ways. And then, uh, you know, more recently, just sort of giving the occasional update. But um uh, you know, there's a part in there where you said something along the lines of what you just said. Uh, we found what we were meant to be doing in life. And I think that's something that obviously a lot of people crave. And maybe you yourself for, you know, decades in your career prior sort of craved and sought after. But it's like, am I ever going to actually find that thing? And, you know, it seems like a little bit of like, you know, go do what you're passionate about. But, you know, is there money there? And it's sort of this issue that people deal with. So I'm curious if there's anything from sort of your journey towards finally landing at this thing, to your point as a result of like COVID, which, you know, wouldn't seem at face value to be a positive thing, but turned out to be sort of a tremendously helpful thing for you and in, in finding, you know, what you love to do. Um, 
if, if there's anything sort of generalizable maybe or, or even just specific to your journey and finding this that you think other people could um, maybe sort of use to to hopefully find what they love to do most maybe and, and not take as many you know decades to get there it's a fascinating question and one that I've given a lot of thought to um it is easy in a way to say, oh, pursue your passion if you already have a reasonably sized nest egg. And I'd be the, the first to admit that um, we weren't exactly launching Doomberg from a position of necessity or weakness. Um, but as I reflect upon my career, um, the thing that made my ascent up the corporate ladder um, relatively rapid was my ability to write concise internal white papers explaining technology to finance professionals in a language that they could understand. Um, and I very much enjoyed doing that. Um, and, you know, the other attributes of leadership and communication skills and all, you know, decision making under pressure and all of those things that test young executives as they climb um, were certainly um, hurdles that I had to jump over, but um, the true differentiator for me was writing, and I love to write, I love to explain, uh, love to tell stories, and um, and so when we started to build out our consulting business in the creator space, those skills were rekindled, and I would say um, it was more luck than anything, uh, and, and so the real lesson for us because I don't want to minimize the challenge and the risks associated with leaving something certain and good enough to pursue something better uh, that that more feeds your passion. It, that risk tolerance is not for everybody. Um, but I will say, if you are lucky enough to find out what you're doing in life and you can create a living out of it, um, I would highly, highly encourage you to do so and to push that as hard as you can for as long as you can, because those are rare moments in life. And so um, I was certainly privileged enough to have carved out a career and saved some resources to be able to take such risks. Um, and we kept the best of our consulting clients as we, as we gambled on the early stages of Doomberg. You know, we wrote Doomberg for free for a year as we grew um, uh, and only turned on the paywall last April, which in hindsight was a very wise decision because it allowed us to reach critical mass and to completely de-risk the exercise. But we still kept um, the core of our consulting franchise um, and hedged our risks along the way. And so it's not like we were reckless in abandoning a sure thing to, in, in pursuit, you know, jumping out of the airplane and assuming you'll catch up to the parachute. Though this is not what we did. And so I don't want to make it sound easy or make it be flippant about it. But in those rare circumstances where you have that aha moment where you discover that, wow, I really love doing this. And here's the test. Um, how easy is it to get out of bed and launch yourself towards the day's activities? I can assure you, I, I do I do most of the writing between 3 and 5 a.m. because that's when my brain fires best. But come 7 a.m. after I've slept a little bit more, um, it is with high motivation that I attack each day uh, with enthusiasm because it is truly what I was meant to do. And that's a very special feeling. And in today's world, where most people are stuck in endless useless meetings, working for faceless corporations, um, and and not really seeing the direct benefit of their work. Um, it can be a pretty miserable life. And and there's a reason why so many talented professionals find it difficult to get out of bed in the morning and what a prison that must be. And I was in prison for various aspects of my career, so I, I speak from a position of direct knowledge and empathy. Um, but if you are lucky enough or willing to take the risk, um, it, it can work. And I'll leave you with the last metric, which we have used throughout both the building of our consulting business and now the building of Doomberg, which is we, we 
actively peruse our calendar and categorize the things that we do into two buckets, that which we have to do and that which we get to do. And then we constantly measure the ratio of get to, have to, and work really hard to outsource or pay other people to do the have tos and focus as much of our day on doing the get tos as possible. And when you do that, you unlock this productivity miracle. You know, we are a very, very small team. And yet we publish six to eight pieces a month and regular guests on podcasts and dealing with inbound emails and comments to all of our pieces. And, and you know, there are less than, you could count the, the size of the Bloomberg team with the fingers on your hand and have uh, a, a couple to spare, let's put it that way. <laughs> and we've, we've done all this together because we have focused on arranging our calendars to do only get to's and to be, you know, you can be extraordinarily productive when you're doing what you love. It, it is not work for me to research, write, and promote these pieces. It is not work for our editor-in-chief to edit and to focus on the operations of the organization. You know, it, it is what we were meant to do, and the market is telling us as much, and uh, and we're just going to keep doing it. Yeah, it's excellent advice overall, and, and appreciate you sharing it, and uh, really resonates with, with me personally. This wasn't something that I was planning on uh, covering at all, but I'm curious to go a little deeper in this direction. You mentioned that you do a lot of your writing between 3 and 5 a.m., uh, tends to be sort of when your best ideas come up. And you've also talked about this uh, pretty interesting approach to your calendar, which like, I, you know, you know, I've obviously heard people talk about delegating the things you don't like to do and whatnot, but the get to and the have to is like a very clear, simple way to look at it and seems like a very effective way to sort of prune your calendar and improve your overall productivity and effectiveness and just doing more of what you love to do in life, which I think generally you know, you got to find a, a sensible business model and everything like that. But generally doing things that you love, I think tends to sort of work out a little bit better than doing a bunch of things all day that you feel like you have to do, but don't really want to. I think it's hard to be sort of great at things if you're doing them by compulsion more than by, you know, sort of inspiration or passion or whatever it might be. Um, so I'm curious, sort of diving into your schedule a little bit. Um, you know, how is it that you actually are up and writing between three and five? Like, are you sleeping in a weird way? Uh, and how are you spending your days to basically uh, accommodate this prolific writing habit and and research and and doing some of the distribution as well? So a couple of things. First, um, even when I was in the corporate world, I was the, sort of the king of the five-minute meeting. Um, if people wanted to get on my calendar, I would insist on a pre-read and a list of the decisions they were seeking from me. And then the meeting would be a quick discussion around that pre-read and the decision. Um, and uh, And I would happily give people back 55 minutes of their calendar. We wrote a piece recently about the upcoming COP28 meeting called Cop Out. And uh, we, we touched a little bit of this in the introduction where we talk about the fact that um, even as we were building our consulting firm and now with Doomberg, other than scheduled podcast appearances, we literally accept almost no meetings. On the flip side, we commit to the stakeholders in our lives that we will be utterly accessible, text, DM, email, phone call. If people reach out to Doomberg, i.e. me or the editor-in-chief, um, you will get a swift and rapid response from us directly. We keep our inbox at zero. Um, every comment uh, to our pieces gets a direct reply from me personally. Uh, we share the inbox duties between two of us. Um, in return for having the complete freedom to do what we get to do whenever we have the time to do it, we, we, uh, we commit to being utterly and, and completely um, accessible. And that's far easier to do, you know, even with our top clients that we've kept, they know that if they send a text, they will get a response. They know that if they call, um, the phone will get picked up. If they send an email, um, they will get a response. 
They don't need to have a meeting. We don't need to be on their calendars to feel important or to feel like we're delivering value. Um, this is a, a, a chronic disease of the modern work schedule that is sapping productivity. And frankly, as we said in the piece, um, you know, feeding uh, inflationary pulses because you have all these people in meaningless jobs doing meaningless work, filling their calendars because a full calendar is the sign of an important person, of course. And, um, and we take the opposite approach quite proactively, made it part of our brand, conditioned our clients to expect that, declined countless meetings until they were conditioned to expect that. And if they didn't like the way that we worked, then we would find other clients. And so, um, because we're just so much more effective when you have all day to think and to discuss topics deeply or to write and or to research. Now to your question about my sleep habits, um, not to get too deep into the weeds, but the average sleep cycle of a person is around an hour and 50 minutes, I believe. And then a really solid nap is around 20 minutes. And I have found that I generally need three sleep cycles and a nap a day. And so I might have two sleep cycles between you know 10 p.m. and 2 or 3 a.m., wake up, do a couple of hours of writing, and then do another sleep cycle before I attack the day. And then in the middle of the afternoon, I might have a 20-minute nap. And, and I find that this works well for me, that in between <laughs> sleep cycles, um, uh, late in the or early in the morning or late in the night, depending on how you characterize it, when the, the house is quiet and the kids are in bed and um, the only noise is, is your cat um, um, meowing for more food, um, that tends to be very productive for me personally. And that's just the way that it works. And of course, since I don't have a schedule tethering me, if I if I do manage to mess up my sleep schedule a bit, it's very easy for me to get back on track because I don't have, you know, back to back meetings for ten hours in the morning when I get up. I have nothing on the calendar in the morning, and so I I tend to do the writing at night, and the research during the day. And by research, I mean perusing social media and reading interesting articles and consuming content of other people and and um, listening to podcasts. And you know, we've built such a critical mass of excellent readers that we crowdsource ideas from them. And we also consult with the experts within our portfolio of readers um, to make our pieces better. And so it's kind of reached this escape velocity, this network effect where we have inbound suggestions for pieces. Um, and given our training, it's very, you know, our scientific training, it's, it's quick for us to ascertain what makes a great piece. Um, and then we have a, a cadre of experts that we can consult to make sure we don't write anything that, um, that, 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 it lands wrong with deeper experts in the field. And you know, we write about a lot of topics and we don't claim to be experts in all of them, but we do have access to experts and can convey um, what they believe to be true in, in, a, in a pretty effective way. And so that that's the sort of the, the combination of the sleep schedule and the sleep science behind how I personally do. It's not for everybody, um, but, uh, and, and in our no meetings agenda, which I think is the absolute key insight to unlocking extraordinary productivity. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating from both the meetings and the sleep perspective. Super unusual. And I'm glad I asked uh, and definitely empathize with the uh, the meetings approach and have tried to implement it, but now sort of motivated to uh, try even a little bit more. Um, basically sort of reserved a couple of hours in which I schedule meetings, but that's it. So anyway, um, why are you doing this pseudonymously? So in the beginning... We had no social media footprint whatsoever, and um, it was a bit of an experiment. And we have some pretty strong marketing chops on our team. And um, one of the phrases that we employed as we were developing the brand concept of Doomberg is it's hard to be remembered if you don't stand out. And so if we had gone with one of our faces, you know, just another vanilla face on Twitter, 
we do believe it would have been difficult to grow as quickly as we did. And the green chicken is nothing if not memorable. Um, it's just a piece of clip art that we colored ourselves, of course, and uh, anybody could have done it. But the beauty is in the simplicity and the, and the stunned eyes are a key part of the brand because it's sort of this tilted head with some confusion about it that, that sort of resonates with our ideal clients. And once we grew, then another observation um, swayed us as to why it is that we should stay anonymous. Whenever big Twitter accounts that were anonymous de-anonymized, we saw brand collapse and we saw engagement collapse and the mystique is gone. And so while hundreds and hundreds of people know who we are on Wall Street and in industry, and we get countless communications to our personal uh, phone numbers via text or email addresses for ideas and, and people cheering us on from industry because we are their voice in many ways, um, for the broader brand protection, it's grown too big to de-anonymize now. And so it's mostly just about the brand. Um, you know, it's, it's not like we're hiding who we are really. And, um, and we don't, there's nothing, you know, that concerns us. Oh my God, like people have figured out who we are. It's not something we spend an ounce of time worrying about. We just do it for the brand now. And, and, and it also is just kind of fun. Like, I do think this is the way future discourse on the internet is headed. Um, you know, people create, you, you joke about the metaverse and Zuckerberg's, uh, foray into it, but, um, you know, the video game, um, second life was extraordinarily popular for a reason. You know, people can create their own characters and their own, um, you know, uh, avatars and, and, you know, online uh, buying of, of branded goods is not as crazy as it sounds to the upcoming generation. And I think in that way, we're just slightly ahead of the curve. Um, and so uh, that's the real reason for it. If, if for example, if um, it became necessary uh, that, you know, Substack would say declare that everybody has to, um, to uh, publicly uh, disclose who's involved in the various Substacks, it would be nothing for us. We would do it. It's not a big deal. Um, it, it's more just about brand protection at this point. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, could definitely talk about that a lot longer as I sort of have my own views on pseudonymity, but uh, don't want to digress too far with the conversation. So uh, one thing, you know, I read in sort of the deliberate choice on on the green chicken was, you know, you guys were inspired by uh, by Chicken Little, like the little paranoid bird that always thought the sky was falling. And uh, obviously, it's in the name as well, Doomberg. You guys have, uh, you know, a bit of this uh, imminent concern that there's troubling times ahead. I'm curious, and, and you know, this sort of comes across in most of your pieces on energy and everything like this that we'll get into. But um, do you view the future and and that you know, you know, uh, sort of negative prospects? Do you, do you think that's sort of inevitable at this point, or do you view the future as sort of up for grabs? And is there an optimistic scenario that? Doomberg is able to envision? Interesting question, and I'm glad you asked it. So we are what's known uh, in psychological parlance as defensive pessimists. So we um, spend probably too much time pondering worst case scenario risk and ways to abate those risks, um, and then feel comfortable to take um, more chances in our life because the worst case scenarios are covered. <clears throat> and so um, we uh, are susceptible to a, a concept that's known as doom scrolling, uh, which I think explains, for example, the the success of Zero Hedge. Um, you know, it's sort of everybody's um, uh, you know, fun exercise to doom scroll Zero Hedge and see if there's anything new to worry about in the world. And um, this genre 
um, resonates with people. And if you look at YouTube, for example, and the prepper channels and, and so on, and, and we're not quite that you know uh, far off the ledge, but we are defensive pessimists. We do ponder worst case scenario risk. We are susceptible to a, uh, a binge of, of doom scrolling once in a while. And so doom was in, as we constructed the brand, you know, not to get too deep into the weeds, but we did, we've explained this in the work of our life pieces and, and on other podcast appearances. You know, we, we designed Doomberg as a business from the start. We brought the audience uh, inside the creation of this business to, to join us in this journey. And the business is described across five pillars, brand, channel, technology, demand, creation, and operations. And brand is a key part of it. And, and brand is a gut feeling. And uh, brand is specifically the gut feeling you induce in your ideal clients as they interact with your product. And and our ideal client is probably reasonably successful, well-educated, concerned about the future course of society and, and is susceptible to a bit of doom scrolling themselves. And and so um, we play off of that, but long-term, we're actually quite optimistic and, and our long-term readers will know that this is a bit of a bit of an inside joke. You know, Chicken Little Gets a Terminal was the original brand concept uh, behind Doomberg. And and deep down, we are deeply optimistic about um, the human endeavor and our capacity to work through these challenges. But in the short to medium term, for sure, I do see uh, you know potential choppy waters ahead, which uh, is the classic thing that a, a defensive pessimist always sees, I suppose. Right. Yeah. No. I uh, I share the long term optimism and understand the uh, the rationale for you know the perspective that you guys take sort of in the near term and the approach and why it's helpful for brand and, and everything like that. So uh, let's dive into energy a bit, which is sort of the uh, the lens through which you do a lot of your writing uh, on sort of the economy at large or, or whatever else it might be. Um, why is energy fundamentally upstream of so much? And uh, sort of how, how has it become mostly understood and or misunderstood rather and, and you know, underappreciated uh, by sort of the powers that be and, and the public? Yeah, great, great question. And and it comes down to a fundamental uh, phrase that we have um, tried to popularize throughout our writing, which is energy is life. And in fact, energy is the true currency. Um, fiat currencies just overlay our energy transactions in a way to try to make them more efficient. And, and what do we mean by energy is life? Um, anybody who has studied the basics of physics will know the, the laws of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics um, essentially states that disorder is spontaneous. And, and what that means is, um, you know, the universe is forever um, decreasing in its order spontaneously. And, and in order to improve your standard of living, you have to impose order on your local environment. And that necessarily comes with a significant energy penalty. And so by definition, your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to harvest. Technically speaking, it's defined by how much energy you get to waste because you have to create waste heat in order to impose order. Right angles do not appear spontaneously in nature. Um, and so um, your literal standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to harvest, which means the totality of the net energy we produce, the sort of energy profit that we produce as a society, uh, it puts a cap on the total standard of living um, we can create for humans. and then. The manner in which we um, allocate that net energy defines how equitable the planet is uh, as it pertains to who gets to have how much. Uh, and why is it that we have um, lost our anchor to this fundamental axiom of physics is, is because we have become the victims of our own success. And so to the thought leaders and the elite uh, policymakers in the Western world, 
energy comes from a light switch and food comes from a few taps on an iPhone. Um, this is, of course, um, sophisticated uh, coverage for or, or, or uh, shielding of the real work that is going on behind the scenes, uh, uh, the brilliant scientists, engineers, technicians, and, and, and laborers um, who are producing that net energy for the rest of us to uh, exploit and to, and to benefit from. And um, if you take too many bricks from the bottom to put it on top, the entire Jenga column collapses, of course. And, and one of the things that I think really resonates with our writing is this reconnection to the axioms of physics and to fundamental truisms, because really, um, once you have those as bedrock anchors to your thinking, the mistakes of the world become apparent, and the trends in, say, uh, investments in those uh, those trends uh, become readily apparent. And, and we're, we don't give investment advice, but we do educate potential investors and, and deliver a framework through which they can make their own allocation decisions. Um, and so um, the nice part about starting from a, you know, to use a phrase that has probably been abused, uh, to, but to start from a first principles approach is that in the long run, you must be proven right. Now, it doesn't mean that the path function might make you look silly uh, between now and then, but in the long run, the fundamental constraints of the universe cannot be wished away. Uh, and, and so um, if you take energy uh, as the sort of, uh, as the ultimate currency of life, um, then you begin to understand the universe in a more practical way. Uh, and that's essentially, you know, we mix in a bit of crypto and a few single stock pieces and stuff, but 80% of our pieces build off of that theme, um, consult the basics of physics and demonstrate how a certain set of policy decisions might be good or unfortunately more more so um, uh, filled with folly. Right. I think that's a, a great sort of introduction. And uh, where I'd like to go next is to discuss uh, sort of Doomberg's ideal energy strategy, at least sort of the most sensible energy strategy available to humanity today. And so you've described that as, um, you know, I think if I can break it into kind of three parts, it's replacing coal with natural gas, uh, scaling nuclear power, making that sort of the centerpiece and, um, you know, uh, also scaling out renewables like wind and, and particularly solar. Um, and I, I, you know, maybe that's not a fair sort of breakdown into three pieces, however you want to break it up, obviously go ahead and do so. But, um, if you could sort of introduce those, you know, that strategy and explain the rationale a bit, and then, um, maybe also sort of compare it to, uh, some of the more popular prevailing alternatives, which obviously are sort of undervaluing nuclear, for example, and maybe moving too quickly to go green, um, sort of describing why, why those are, are sort of incorrect and, and unideal strategies. Yeah, you, you got almost all of it right. Um, we think wind is a complete misallocation of capital, but we'll get into that. So yes, um, there is no path. So let's take a step back. What function are we trying to optimize? And um, we take it as an axiom that carbon emissions uh, are something we would like to minimize. Um, lots of people would argue as to whether that is wise or not. But if you just assume that the function we're trying to maximize is the ratio of the total net energy we produce divided by our carbon emissions, then the policy framework that flows from that um, is self-evident. Um, and we say, you know, divided by, because there is really no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And far too often, the real trade-off of hardship imposed upon current living humans is brushed aside as people put forward uh, simplified um, and grossly ignorant energy policies that will condemn 
billions of people to much lower standards of living and, and in many cases, even death and starvation. And so that ratio of standard of living, i.e. net energy, total net energy produced divided by carbon emissions is one that feeds our four point plan for, um, for US energy policy in particular, because most of our readers are in the US. Um, first, as you correctly articulated, uh, first and foremost, we think we need a complete revitalization of our relationship with nuclear energy. Um, there is no path to significant decarbonation uh, without catastrophic impact on humans that does not squarely drive through uh, nuclear power at the center of it. And so if we only had one policy proposal to make, it would be that one. Um, nuclear power is the highest uh, energy density uh, form of, uh, of, of fuel that we have. It, it is the least uh, in, uh, environmental impact uh, on the world. The, the nuclear waste canard um, is wholly concocted by Malthusian environmentalists who are actually uh, looking to have far fewer humans on the planet, although they rarely admit it, at least not directly. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing about nuclear energy that can't solve our problems. Nuclear is considered expensive and, and takes too long to, to develop now, but those are policy choices. Um, that those are specific objectives of the radical environmental movement to make nuclear energy expensive and to make it too long to turn on because they hate it. And they hate it precisely because it, it provides an abundance of cheap energy for humans to exploit because they believe uh, doing so will uh, strain other resource limitations on the planet and disrupt um, their, their idealized version of precious nature, um, which again, has far less humans uh, on it uh, and involved with it than, than currently exists today, let alone um, the growth um, that we expect to see in the decades ahead. Um, so nuclear energy would be the beating heart of our policy. Um, second, especially in the US, um, if you look at the total amount of natural gas that we flare and we export, that's roughly on a BTU basis, uh, equivalent to the total amount of coal we're still burning. And um, you know, on a carbon emission basis, natural gas uh, is inherently uh, lower emissions, but also um, stands the possibility uh, of being able to capture carbon more cleanly, because if you can react pure natural gas with purified oxygen that you've separated from the air, um, you can create a, a relatively clean stream of, of carbon dioxide and water from which you can readily capture the carbon dioxide and inject it underground for permanent storage. Um, and so um, having a, you know, hundreds of years of, of, of economically exploitable natural gas reserves here um, makes it kind of silly that we're still burning coal um, uh, on the scale that we are. Now, that might upset many people in, in the heavy industries that we tend to represent, but um, that's just the way, the way it is. Um, third is um, there, the world is bombarded by um, an enormous amount of solar energy. And while there are some significant challenges with um, sort of photovoltaics as, as it exists today, we do believe that uh, in the long term, solar needs to be part of the mix. And so specifically, we propose that we should take back some of the solar supply chain that China illegally monopolized over the decades. We were in the industry when they did so. Um, we have this cheap, abundant natural gas. Um, the, the synthesis of polysilicon, which is at the heart of most photovoltaic cells uh, today, uh, is one of the most energy intense uh, chemical processes uh, in the world. And we should be doing it here in the US with our abundance of natural gas in the shale patch. Uh, and then finally, um, uh, in our effort to um, decarbonize the transportation sector, we have proposed that we should focus our efforts on plug-in hybrid electric vehicles as opposed to full battery electrics because battery materials are the constraint. And when you have a constraint, you must manage to it. And we can abate 
far more gasoline usage by spreading those batteries over more vehicles than concentrating them on, on one. Um, so that's the four-point plan that we would put forward. Wind does not have a role in our strategy because wind is is an abs just absurdly dumb uh, strategy. Um, it, it is not it is not green. It is not renewable. Um, and we have predicted and, and written in a few pieces that the, the demise of the wind sector is imminent. Right. So um, can we double click a bit on nuclear? You sort of gave a you know a pretty clear case for why it's sensible as the centerpiece, but I'd be curious. Uh, maybe a couple of things. One would be, uh, given all of the irrational rebuttals, sort of the the fear mongering of, you know, TV and movies and arguments that it's unsafe and largely threatening when in fact, it's, you know, much less deadly per unit of energy than most of the other types of energy, at least that's my understanding. Um, given these sort of illogical rebuttals, or, you know, arguments against nuclear, are there any legitimate ones out there? And of how would you counter those most legitimate rebuttals um that's one question and then secondarily uh you know could could a country go in on nuclear sort of separate themselves from the global harmonization on energy policies or you know mostly harmonization on energy policies and and go sort of invest heavily in nuclear and sort of build themselves into um somewhat of an energy superpower or is that something that's just like totally off base and not possible um so let's take those questions in order um so um there are very 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 few legitimate arguments against nuclear and even those get washed away when you consider the negative externalities of all other energy sources available to us today um the one thing that i would seed is a challenging problem that has solutions um, but um, but shouldn't be minimized is the risk of uh, nuclear proliferation. Um, and so um, if you spread enrichment of, of, uh, of nuclear materials, uranium in particular, um, around the world, you do run the risk of bad actors using their civilian nuclear energy industries as cover for covert development of nuclear weapons um, we would, of course, be steadfastly opposed to all nuclear weapons. Um, we were in the Carl Sagan camp uh, in that regard. Uh, but um, the besmirching of the civilian nuclear energy industry um, by environmentalists, by tying it to what bad actors will do, um, we think is a bit unfair because bad actors will do what they will have to do um, to get things done. And frankly, of course, um, famously, although this is not widely known, um, India um, did this and and developed its nuclear technology outside of international norms and is still condemned for it and is still uh, considered a um, a bit of a, uh, uh, a a bad actor in that regard because it developed nuclear weaponry um, uh, outside of international treaties and is still being punished for it um, today, which is why, of course, they have uh, spent so much time and energy developing their domestic thorium nuclear reactor technology because they are banned from accessing a lot of the civilian nuclear um, technologies that the rest of the world enjoys that have not, um, you know, taken that leap to uh, to develop nuclear weapons uh, for their own uh, defense. Uh, and so um, nuclear proliferation is, is the one counter to our proposal on nuclear energy that we would say requires some dedicated effort. Uh, these, of course, are political decisions and can be managed, but, um, and again, uh, compared to 
um, you know, the burning of coal uh, or the alleged uh, catastrophic consequences of, uh, of carbon emissions. Um, if those catastrophic consequences of carbon emissions are true, then dealing with nuclear proliferation is just on one side of the scale and, and the end of the world is on the other. And so it is not a, a compelling argument against it. Um, but that is the one um, argument that I would say needs um, rigorous uh, thought and, and, and implementation of policies that minimize the risk of proliferation. So, uh, oh, and then did you, uh, did you have any thoughts on sort of the ability of a country to go yeah. sort of invest all in on nuclear? Yeah. So the second part of your question then is that two countries have already done that. Well, one country and one province. Um, France, even though it has badly mismanaged its nuclear fleet, built out 60 gigawatts of, of nuclear power 50 years ago and has been running one of the least carbon intense electricity grids in the world. Um, you know, France has no oil or natural gas superpower, and yet it has a perfectly well-functioning grid with very low carbon intensity. This is, again, a solved problem. Um, and then we would point you to the province of Ontario. We wrote a piece recently called Cheat Codes, um, where we showed that, um, you know, Ontario has um, its electricity grid uh, comes predominantly from nuclear power and um, and a bit of hydroelectric uh, power, um, both within the province and imported from the province of Quebec, its neighbor, and has the basically the greenest electricity grid in the developed world. And look, last time I traveled through Ontario, it's a beautiful province. The highways are smooth. Um, the people are polite. Um, the restaurants are, are well-staffed and people are smiling and, and there weren't um, green glowing fish in various creeks or ponds. I mean, they, they get something like 60, 65% of their electricity from nuclear power. Uh, people happily live uh, next door to these facilities. They're perfectly safe. Thousands of their neighbors um, work there and have very high paying union jobs that contribute to the community. Um, there's literally very little wrong with nuclear energy. Um, if we're going to do an honest assessment of trade-offs, it can be done. And, and the reason why we call that piece cheat codes is because the way they resettled on nuclear energy is they had their own version of the inflation reduction act back in 2009, the green, I believe it was the green energy act of Ontario of 2009, which was a complete farce dissolved into a, a, an orgy of corruption and grift led to the historic defeat of the ruling Liberal Party at, the, at a provincial election. And, and the conservatives who replaced them have implemented a, a sane policy of, of, of a renaissance with nuclear power. They're leading the world in the development of, uh, of both large and small modular reactors. And, and the can-do reactor technology of Canada is, is really a remarkable thing. And, and again, uh, for, you know, um, they were installing, I think, a gigawatt a year for 20 years in, in, in the country of Canada um, 50 years ago. This, this, these are all solved problems. Uh, this, we know how to do this. We just need to get serious about energy again. So uh, zooming in on the U.S. in particular, you know, why is the U.S. not serious here? It seems to be an increasingly popular you know, sort of thing where people seem to be on board with nuclear energy. Maybe that's not true, but that's sort of my sense. Like I've certainly heard more about it and more favorably about it over the last, I don't know, five years or so. And, um, you know, nonetheless, the US is going down and shutting down nuclear plants around the country, California in particular, I think. Um, what's the sort of, you know, this isn't something that opposes like the green movement or climate change, which is probably like number one on, you know, a lot of the powers that be sort of agenda. Um, so why, why not nuclear from their perspective? So, um, the, the acid test of the seriousness of uh, environmentalists who claim to be concerned about carbon emissions is, in fact, their stance on nuclear power. And I would correct one thing that you said. Um, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, 
who undoubtedly has very few things in his political philosophy that we would agree on, has worked to keep the last remaining nuclear power plant um, in California um, operable, the Diablo Canyon, which provides 10% um, of the state's electricity and 20% of the state's baseload power. Um, some would argue that he is um, cynically keeping this plant open out of political necessity because he has ambitions for higher office. And we would say, so what? Um, good. Um, this is the whole point of politics, to um, to force politicians to make decisions that are right um, for society. And so while we would uh, we would disagree with Gavin Newsom on almost everything else, credit where credit is due, he has spent significant political capital and confronted the more radical environmental Malthusians in his political base uh, to keep Diablo Canyon operable uh, for as long as possible. And we applaud him for that. And in fact, same thing happening in Michigan. Um, uh, the governor of Michigan um, seems to have some ambitions for higher political office, and she is working hard to keep uh, or to restart Palisades, the Palisades nuclear power plant, which would be the first restart of a shuttered nuclear power plant in the history of the U.S. Uh, we just turned on a new nuclear reactor for the first time in a while in Georgia. Um, there's a lot of momentum and support for nuclear power in the Inflation Reduction Act. And again, credit where credit is due, the Biden administration through the Department of Energy, at least, is signaling its support for, for such projects, including the development of small modular reactors for the production of electricity and industrial-grade steam within our Brownsfield sites uh, uh, in our manufacturing sector. There is one critical government agency that needs to be completely dismantled and rebuilt, and that is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is, as we wrote in a piece called Nuclear Waste, um, totally captured by radical environmentalists and exists Really, you would think that it would exist to support the industry and, and to ensure the safe operations of our existing nuclear fleet and, and to stoke the growth of new ones. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. The NRC is on the critical path of a nuclear renaissance in the U.S. and needs to be completely gutted, in, in our view. Uh, it has been totally captured by radical environmental Malthusians uh, who, who are basically spending their entire lives doing everything in their power to stop nuclear energy from proliferating. Um, and so um, many, many people in the U.S. are seeing the wisdom of nuclear power. And to the extent that we've played our own small role in advocating for the industry, um, this is part of the work that we're most proud of. But there's much more work to do. Um, there are other countries far ahead of us uh, in this regard. Uh, but we are seeing everywhere in the world, practically except for Germany, a reconsideration of the folly of abandoning nuclear power and the wisdom of, of having a renaissance with it. Right. So, uh, you know, you brought up Germany and uh, moving over to there and sort of Europe at large. Uh, you've written about, you know, we saw sort of a pretty uh, interesting situation develop, could have been much more unfortunate situation develop last winter. Um, basically, you know, my understanding is the mildness of their winter in Europe, just, you know, betting on the weather, basically, and, um, you know, leaning on coal and, and fossil fuels sort of saved what could have been a much worse scenario that that you and uh, the team were sort of projecting as well as others. Um, and this winter, you know, could be sort of more of the same and, and you don't know how the weather is going to turn out and it could be sort of more of a brutal, brutal winter and, and the worst case scenario sort of could pan out. And moreover, there's sort of this false confidence, I think you've called like peak complacency, because of the luck sort of that was enjoyed last winter and the confidence that, oh, we handled this last time everyone was concerned and, and we can handle this again. Can you sort of describe the situation in Europe and uh, your sort of outlook for, for what's ahead there? 
one of the things that we have tried to warn our friends in Europe, and we have many friends in Europe, we have many colleagues, former colleagues there, and frankly, thousands of subscribers from the area. We wish no ill will on it. And in fact, um, nobody was happier than we were that a, a you know three sigma warmer weather winter um, befell the, the continent um, in the winter of 22, 23, and allowed them to escape the folly of their energy policy with minimal damage. Now, even saying that, you know, they spent hundreds of billions of dollars chasing every BTU of energy from around the world, regardless of cost, carbon footprint, or impact on the developing nations. Um, and they have catalyzed the, the rapid deindustrialization of, of their economies as a consequence of their energy policy. So to say that they, quote, escaped the winter because it was mild um, is, is a stretch of the word escape um, beyond uh, all recognition in our view. Uh, but the absolute worst case scenario tail risks were abated, thankfully because of this mild winter and what what lies ahead there are two schools of thought um and by the way i should say we are not meteorologists and and this is outside of our depth of expertise but i'm happy to articulate the schools of thought and the listeners can decide on their own probabilities one school of thought is we just finished a three-year la nina and have entered an el nino and um La Nina weather patterns are characterized by unusually warm winters in Western Europe in particular, which is what we saw. And El Nino weather patterns are characterized by um, drier and much colder winters in Western Europe, which heaven forbid, um, we pray does not happen um, this winter. Uh, second school of thought is that this massive volcanic eruption um, in the Pacific last year um, spewed so much water vapor into the atmosphere that this is responsible for both um, the mild winter that Europe um, experienced and the record high temperatures we're seeing in parts of the world the summer that the media has been hyperventilating about. Um, if that's true, then the outlook for the European winter of 23-24 looks pretty good. And if they're lucky enough to get through this winter, then the the investments they've been making to you know increase their capacity to uh, import natural gas and to um, secure coal and other resources that they would need would probably mean that they've gotten through the last of the big risky winters, and we hope that's the case. Um, but we shall see. One of the things we have constantly written is do not confuse good luck with sound strategy, but it seems as though the leaders in Europe have um, not taken that advice. Right. So uh, sort of, I guess, a uh, more macro example or uh, you know, sign of, of the same sort of direction is you know germany having to lean in on coal um i think you guys sort of have the view that this might be representative of, of sort of a larger phenomenon that's going to occur in the next um you know in the decades to come where uh you know when shit really hits the fan we need to sort of lean on on the energy that we have and um so sort of for that reason or, or maybe some others i think you guys are predicting sort of peak fossil fuels you know, in 2040, or maybe not peak, but more in 2040 than there is today, which I think a lot of people sort of following, you know, policies around climate and companies and countries going green and everything like this would find quite surprising. Can you sort of, uh, you know, explain the rationale of why you think oil and, and coal and natural gas are going to be more prevalent, uh, you know, 17 years from now than, than they are today? The fundamental driver of consumption of fossil fuels is availability of fossil fuels. And we we have, in our writings, developed a, a phrase that we call Doomberg's postulate, which is that every molecule of fossil fuels will be burned by somebody somewhere, and local restrictions only shift who gets to enjoy that privilege. 
the developing world has abandoned their carbon commitments, period. Nobody likes to say that. Um, China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, Pakistan, this is four or five billion people. Are, they looked at what Germany did and have stopped listening to what Germany is saying. At the first sign of crisis, Germany retreated to the coal mines with the speed and efficiency of the evacuation of Dunkirk. And everybody saw what Germany did and felt the damage and, and the repercussions of Germany's actions and have said, fool me once. Um, so if you are, you know, if you're Indonesia and the average citizen of your very populous country um, has the privilege of exploiting one-tenth of the BTUs that an American does, do you really care? what a professor in America thinks you should be doing? Uh, of course not. So um, coal, record production in 2022, record production in 2023, uh, no signs of abating. Any coal not burned in the US or Europe will be greedily burned um, in the developing world because this is a source of cheap and reliable energy. You have a giant pile of coal. Uh, it's easy to ship. You, you know that you have it. You have the inventory for the winter and off you go. Um, same with gasoline, as we talked about in a piece I believe was titled "Stuck in the Middle with You." Every, you know, the the, the, the refining of oil is a is a classic core product economic situation, and every gallon of gasoline not burned here will be lapped up in the developing world, which is where, by the way, we export all of our quote end of life vehicles, and they keep operable for decades. So the total fleet of internal combustion engines continues to grow, and if uh, we ban the burning of gasoline in the U.S., that's just going to make it extraordinarily cheap for uh, the developing world to, to buy and consume it. And they will because energy is life and they want a higher standard of living. And so um, Europe for all of its pontificating uh, and, um, and you know, um, dictating to the world how things should be done, doesn't produce any oil, natural gas uh, uh, or coal to speak of. Okay? Uh, a few percentage points at best of, of global production capacity. Um, nobody cares what Europe thinks. Frankly, Europe is a colonial uh, power of the past. And, and they produce nothing of consequence vis-a-vis uh, -vis fossil fuels. And um, the, the, the countries that do uh, aren't going to listen to them as they uh, go about the task of correctly um, defending and improving the standard of living of their citizenry. And governments that fail to do that will be overthrown. And so energy is life. Um, all humans everywhere want a higher standard of living. And that's just the way it's going to be. Like I, Europe has as much say in how much coal gets burned in the world um, as you and I do, which is none, period. China, it doesn't care what Brussels has to say about the fact that it's building out dozens of world-scale coal power plants right now. Why? Because China cares about the stability of the Chinese Communist Party's rule. And in the absence of a sufficient amount of energy to maintain the standard of living of its people, uh, it will be overthrown. So, um, you know, the, the, the pontifications of, of, of European elite from their ivory towers is, is completely and totally irrelevant to the energy future of Nigeria, uh, of Indonesia, of Brazil, of Argentina, of uh, India, of China. Pick your favorite. Um, these people will not be denied a better standard of living. And, and frankly, who the hell are we to try and deny them? Uh, it's absurd on its face. Yeah. So uh, last question here. I know, I know we're coming up on time, but, uh, you know, we, we talked a bit about why energy is sort of upstream of everything earlier and then obviously introduced your, um, you know, your strategy on on what's best to do from here. If we did employ that strategy, if we did invest in nuclear and replaced some coal with natural gas and 
maybe improved long solar as well, or even just nuclear on its own. If we really invested heavily, um, you know, on a national scale in the US, but on, on a global scale in nuclear energy and everything sort of went Doomberg's way, um, what are the downstream impacts of that sort of energy revolution on the rest of the world? What's sort of the optimistic future that you could envision if this scenario did sort of come to fruition? How many geniuses exist in the developing world that we have missed? You know, um, people talk about the rate of change of the environment, but what about the rate of change in technology? And, uh, you know, I, I, I was shaped by reading Ray Kurzweil's book, uh, The Singularity is Near, which is almost a cliche now, but when I read it decades ago for the first time, it really had an impact. And we're seeing today with the advent of AI and the proliferation of the internet and the really the, the, um, the making of world-class education available to everyone in the world. We've not yet really run the experiment of every genius in the world having access to everyone else in the world and being able to contribute on level footing. Like I, I this goes back to our long-term optimism about you know the human endeavor. And, and if we put our minds to it, we can solve basically any problem that we, we choose. Um, there are hundreds of millions of people for whom um, the very first slice of Maslow's pyramid of hierarchy of needs is, is at risk. And if we can bring countless more people up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, the, the, the human potential is, uh, is uncapped. Um, you know, if people talk about demographics and so on, I, I, you know, um, demographics of China and shrinking population. If you focus on the demographics of China and measure the size of their middle class, you would have a different view of the, demo, the demographic future of China um, than, say, Peter Zihan likes to popularize. Um, in our view, um, you know, the human potential is, is amazing. Uh, the Earth is not a closed system. Uh, as technology continues to evolve, the potential to tap energy resources from outside of the planet um, becomes more and more viable. Um, it really is, I think, um, deeply pessimistic to assume that we should have far less humans on the planet and that the existing humans on the planet should make do with much less. Um, this is, a, first of all, it's a losing political strategy, guaranteed to result in societal upheaval and re revolution and revolt, uh, but also, I think, um, is foolishly short the human spirit and the human capacity for innovation uh, and, and the ability to thrive. And um, look no further than the world of chess, for example, which is one of our hobbies. The proliferation of the internet and online chess has uncovered so many more geniuses and prodigies from all over the world that would never have been discovered. And as crazy as it sounds, we look to chess both for, um, you know, the potential for untapped human innovation, but also uh, for the, the complete democratization of, of, of opportunity. Uh, and then finally, of course, um, uh, even though computers have taken over more and more of our lives, the popularity of human chess the, the drama, the imperfections and the mistakes has only skyrocketed, even though chess is effectively a solved problem from a computer perspective, in that years ago, computers learned how to play perfect chess um, with, with, with no hassle whatsoever. Nobody cares about that. So the, 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 the human endeavor is perfectly captured by the, the ongoing evolution and popularity of chess on the internet. And I, and I do, you know, that's a great way to close, I think, on a, on a hopeful note. Um, that by um, by energizing, literally energizing billions of people who would have been forgotten in the past without these developments, 
um, we will feed that exponential growth uh, of the human endeavor uh, for, for far longer than techno pessimists and environmental alarmists um, would have us believe. Yeah, I think that's uh, extremely well said and and uh, a great place to wrap things up. Chess in particular is a uh, a wonderful microcosm for hopefully what's to come. So I think uh, that's the best possible place to to wrap up. Uh, people can go follow you and uh, you know read Doomberg at doomberg.substack.com. Um, anywhere else you would like to send people or anything else you would like to share before wrapping up. Otherwise, uh, great speaking with you. Really enjoyed the conversation and. Uh, Looking forward to continuing to follow along and, and rooting for Doomberg in the future. No, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, Jake, and congratulations. I, I was perusing the guest list that you had on um, before our appearance, and it's pretty impressive. I would say doomberg.substack.com is, is now really the only place you can find us. We're all in on the Substack experiment. Uh, we are 100% subscriber supported, and um, and we don't accept ads or or sponsorship opportunities. Not that there's anything wrong with those business models, but for us, we feel like it preserves maximum editorial flexibility to be supported by our readers. So head over to doomberg.substack.com and uh, become a subscriber today. And, and Jake, once again, fantastic discussion and happy to come back anytime you'll have us.